0: Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening.
1: Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. Joining me today for the second part of this two-part series on harm reduction is Dr. Jeffrey Singer, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Dr. Singer works in the Department of Health Policy Studies. He was involved in the creation and passage of the Arizona Health Care Freedom Act and served as treasurer of the U.S. Health Freedom Coalition. He writes and speaks extensively on regional and national public policy, and with a specific focus on the areas of health care policy and the harmful effects of drug prohibition. As we begin Part 2, Dr. Singer talks about his research that suggests policy-induced curtailment of manufacture and prescription of opioids has driven up the overdose rate in our country.
2: They should never have done that. And it got so bad that the CDC, and I think it was May, issued a, 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 a mea culpa. And they basically said, you guys totally misinterpreted and misapplied our, our 2016 guidelines. The guidelines, they admitted in their own guidelines, they said these, to quote them, these are voluntary and not meant to be prescriptive uh, they mentioned that their guidelines were based on type 4 evidence which they, def- they they defined as the weakest type of evidence with a significant likelihood that they that they'll be subsequently found to be wrong and much of it is observational and not uh, based on randomized controlled trials mm-hmm. and uh, and 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 they said that the practitioners know their patients better than anyone and should be able to read weigh the risks and benefits when they're prescribing to their patients. And then they went on to say, for acute pain I'm talking about now, um, uh, and now I'm paraphrasing, but they basically said, in most cases of, when when treating somebody for acute pain, try something that's not other than an opioid if you think that could work first. Well, that to me is tell me something I don't know. That's what you always do. Um, then, uh, if you need to use an opioid, um, you know, in, in In many cases, five days is uh, worth of the opioid is sufficient for most procedures uh, uh, or seven days at at the most. So that gets into, you know, medicine is nuanced. We're not machines. People are not machines, as I was describing earlier. You know, a dose that may not touch one person could could be an overdose in another person. So, um, but policy and laws, it's very hard to make nuanced policy and laws. It's always one size fits all. So that gets interpreted into oh, okay, now we got the answer, 5-day limit. So in Arizona, 5-day limit. Uh Massachusetts said so no, 7 days, so 7-day limit. In Kentucky, they did 3-day limit. Well, that's not how things work. So uh what 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 that ends up doing is it uh it, it, there's some people that need refills, other people they have leftover 5-day limit. Again, it's it's nuanced. It never was meant to be that way. That's resulting in a lot of people who need pain medicine being under-medicated for pain. I'm, in, I'm in practicing surgery for 38 years, and I've done enough of different types of operations to be able to, at this point in my career, have a good idea of how many days an average, a typical patient will be in pain bad enough to require an opioid. Bad idea. That's number one. Just as a person who knows about how to treat patients.
1: To learn more on this, I found an interesting study that was published on bmj.com. In 2014, the U.S. government rescheduled hydrocodone combination products from Schedule 3 to Schedule 2, and that essentially made it much harder for people to obtain prescriptions. A study was done to determine if reducing the legal supply without in-hand reducing the demand would lead people to turn to illicit drugs. Judith Aldridge, who is the professor of criminology at the University of Manchester, recaps the findings of their report on this BMJ Talk Medicine podcast.
3: We not only saw in in our results um, a a large rise after uh, the the change in the legislation uh, in hydrocodone products being sold and bought, bought and sold, um, on darknet markets, Uh, But it wasn't it wasn't a spike. It was it was a sustained increase in sales. And then as time went on, we began to see the switch to uh, stronger products, um, first oxycodone and then eventually fentanyl. Uh, So what our study did was show two things effectively that although it can't um, demonstrate certainly that the the uh, results that we found were caused by the change in the law. They coincided perfectly with the change in the law, but only for darknet sellers in the United States. These same rises weren't happening for dark net sellers in other countries. So that really gave us some confidence that the change was quite likely, that we saw in sales, was quite likely to, be, to have been linked to the change in the law. And then, picking up on the iron law of prohibition,
1: The term Iron Law of Prohibition was coined by cannabis activist Richard Cohen in a 1986 article. And in it, he states, as law enforcement becomes more intense, the potency of prohibited substances increases. For more on this topic, see the Iron Law Prohibition infographic published with this podcast at Cover2.org.
3: We saw the move towards more concentrated and potent products. And the one that is of particular interest in this study, of course, is the move towards the buying and selling of fentanyl, which is a ba- it's not just somewhat more potent. it's, it's you know maybe a hundred times more potent um, than some comparable products. And therefore, you know the, the sort of public health implications of this um, are, are significant and important.
1: Jack Cunliffe, lecturer in Quantitative Methods and Criminology at the University of Kent, shares additional insights into their study on this clip from the BMJ Talk Medicine podcast, Darknet Opioids.
4: I can put a little bit of flesh on the bones of this what we're talking about. So in terms of numbers, in terms of actually sort of understanding the sort of changes that we're seeing, um, at the beginning of the time period and up to October 2014, prescription opioids in the USA accounted for about 6% of all the sales on darknet markets. Um, at the, from this September 2014 um, change in the law, we saw a steady rise uh, to the end of our uh, time period when prescription opioids represented around about 13% of all the sales that were happening in the USA. So quite a significant increase, about 4 percentage points per year. Um, and there were no changes in any other categories in any other place. So prescription stimulants, uh, things like modafinil or Ritalin were all the same. There was a flat trend there. Um, Sedatives, diazepam, Xanax, they were the same. Um, And there was no change in prescription opioids outside the USA. And in terms of the final point about the movement towards more potent forms of the drugs, um, at the beginning of the time period, uh, fentanyl represented less than 2.5% of all the sales of Opioids on the dark net. but by the end of the time period that we studied it was up to around about 22% of all the sales Which are significant changes Regulation in general of the drug trade is not necessarily a bad thing But it needs to be regulation at an early stage not at a late stage um, We saw since the early 90s this huge increase in these prescription opioids and Regulations come too late when there's a high demand Regulation to address demand is good if something is dangerous. But once the genie's out of the bottle, so to speak, then we need to take a different approach. We need to take something that affects the demand. Anything that, looks, everything that tries to affect the supply seems to us, and it happened with alcohol and it seems to be happening now with prescription opioids, is almost doomed to failure.
1: I'd like to move on to one of the other strategies that uh, you were recommending, and that is repealing the crack house statute and supporting SIFs. Let's talk about that just a little bit, if we could.
2: Well, the crack house, actually, something might happen on that soon. Because just the other day, there was a, a very uh, important uh, court decision.
1: So, what is the crack house statute? Let's start there.
2: All right, the crack house statute was passed in 1984, I believe. And the short version is it makes it federally illegal to knowingly permit the use, sale, or distribution uh, of a federally prohibited substance on your premises, okay, Uh, originally designed, uh, obviously, to crack down on crack houses. Um, Now, the reason it's it's a problem these days is because another really known effective form of harm reduction called supervised injection facilities, they're also called safe injection facilities or uh, overdose prevention centers, it's been around since the 80s. uh, there are over 120 major cities in Europe, Canada, and Australia that have safe injection facilities. There's one that's operating in this country since 2014, and it's not allowed. So they're they're they are they 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 have been reported on in the medical literature, and their name and location has been kept secret so they don't get into trouble. Um, but uh, and what this is is as we talked earlier about needle needle exchange. Well, needle exchange. Is good as far as it goes, but safe injection facilities you could see you could see intuitively would be a better idea because once you give the clean needle and syringe to a user, uh, you don't have uh, control of what happens next. So they're out on the street, and maybe they eventually share that with someone else or sell it. Uh, lots of times they're not around. Uh, there's nobody around to rescue them if they overdose. So the whole idea between a safe uh, behind a safe injection facilities you, you come in off the street. Obviously, you have to bring whatever it is you have because it's not legal. And you uh given a clean needle and syringe. You inject in the presence of somebody who's standing not far away with naloxone in case you overdose to rescue you. And then you get, they take the needle and syringe back from you and dispose of it properly. And then you, you could leave. But they tell you, you know, you come back here as often as you need to, as, to and we'll give you a clean needle. But we're not letting you take it with you. And at the same time that they do that, for a lot of people, um, it's it's been found that it's it's uh, it's helped bring a lot of people not only prevent overdoses, but it's bring a lot brought a lot of people into rehab because this unjudgmental uh, uh, way of dealing with people who have have uh, IV drug addiction and who a lot of them their their self esteem is you know amazingly low levels they're living out on the street now they're you can come in out of the cold weather uh you can stay here as long as you want to we have coffee over there we have a shower if you want to clean up uh you start getting uh, uh, you the, the feeling that people actually care about you makes you open up and uh, there's been a lot of uh hard data showing that a lot of uh, it increases the likelihood that people will actually get into rehab this way too so it's 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 better than uh, needle exchange. Uh, there's several of them operating in Canada. The oldest one in North America has been operating in Vancouver, British Columbia since 2003. We had a conference about this at the Cato Institute in March. So uh, several cities would like to do this in their own city. There's a group in Philadelphia led by uh, former governor and Philadelphia mayor, Ed Rendell. So, completely private group. They had private funding. And in fact, uh, a prominent developer whose son died of an IV heroin overdose donated a building to them. So there's no uh, government money involved. They're not asking for government money. The city council voted to give them permission. They want to set up in Ken- the Kensington district, which is a lot of IV drug use, a lot of needles on the street, a lot of users on the street. They want to build a safe house for them. That's what they want to call a safe house, where they can get in off the street, actually out of the view of people, and use in a safe environment. And 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 and, and like I said earlier, it's a, it's a benefit. Unfortunately, that's against the law in the United States. And uh, a year ago, a deputy, then Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein wrote an op-ed in the New York Times saying, if you try this, there will be swift action from the federal government. Um, and uh, Governor Rendell speaking to Cato said, uh, you know, let them put me in jail. So um, the uh, U.S. attorney for, that, for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, Bill McSwain, Went to the U.S. court to ask for what they call a declaratory judgment. That's uh, before, in other words, before going to court, before indicting or prosecuting, they're asking the judge to say, "Am I interpreting the law correctly or not?" I'd like you to tell us what the law means—the the Crack statute—and everybody was expecting, because of the, 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 you know, the way the law is written. Uh, I think, well, at least I was expecting, a lot of my colleagues were expecting that it was not going to work out. But the judge, uh, I think it was Thursday, uh, Wednesday, Wednesday, on October 2nd, the, the judge said actually that he doesn't see uh, any problem, uh, any conflict with the Krakow statute uh, it, by them establishing
0: safe house.
1: Earlier this year, Reason TV profiled the emerging legal battle at Safehouse.
0: Fatal overdoses from opioids in the United States have increased about 250% since 2007, and opioids now make up over two-thirds of all overdose deaths. The problem is particularly acute in a handful of states, including Pennsylvania, which has the third highest overdose death rate in the country. In the city of Philadelphia, overdose deaths are concentrated in the neighborhood of Kensington which is the epicenter of the city's opioid crisis. But advocates here are now planning to open a so-called supervised injection site, targeted not just at helping addicts break their addiction, but at keeping them alive as they continue to use. And the federal government has sued to stop them from opening. Safe injection sites are a way of making better use of a drug called naloxone, often known by the brand name Narcan which is remarkably effective at stopping overdoses as they're occurring. Opioid molecules bind to the receptors that control respiration. During an overdose, breathing can slow or stop entirely. This can lead to severe brain damage or asphyxiation and death.
3: Narcan deployed in the left nostril.
0: Narcan binds to the opioid receptors in the brain, displacing any present opioid molecules. It can rapidly reverse the effects of an overdose in as little as 2 minutes. Though it has no side effects, Narcan is hard to come by. It's not available over-the-counter, and in some states, doctors aren't allowed to prescribe it to someone who doesn't intend on using it themselves. Philly's supervised injection site would be a place where addicts can use drugs in the presence of medical professionals ready to administer Narcan to abort an overdose. The facility will also provide clean needles and a sanitary environment. The project is called Safe House, and it's rumored that organizers are planning to locate it in this nondescript warehouse on a side street in Kensington that's littered with needles. Safe House would be the first supervised injection site in the United States operating out in the open, but in 2014, a social service agency opened a covert facility in an undisclosed urban neighborhood in the US. According to a 2017 study in the American Journal of Preventative Medicine, Over two years, 2,574 injections were performed at the site, 90% of which would have otherwise occurred in a public restroom, street, park, or parking lot, according to participants. Two overdoses were treated immediately with Narcan. There are over 120 supervised injection sites across the globe. Safehouse is modeled after InSight, a supervised injection site in Vancouver, Canada. Founded in 2003, InSight has played a key role in studies of the efficacy of harm reduction techniques offered by supervised injection sites.
2: It is not lawful to facilitate the illegal use of drugs.
0: Projects like Safehouse, however, are in violation of the so-called Crack House statute, which was part of the Federal Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986.
5: We don't supply anybody with drugs. We don't touch drugs, none of our personnel do.
0: Ed Rendell, who's both a former governor of Pennsylvania and former mayor of Philly, sits on the board of the nonprofit that's behind Safe House. And he's been instrumental in building support for the project.
5: A lot of those people are in their their 20s and if they straighten out and get treatment and, and get off the addiction, they could go on to do wonderful things for themselves, for their families, for us as a society.
0: According to the law, it's illegal to maintain any property for the purpose of manufacturing, distributing, or using any controlled substance. Violators can be sentenced to up to 20 years in prison and face a fine of up to half a million dollars.
5: It never really was meant to be illegal. The senators and congressmen who developed the house statute never in a million years thought about volunteer medical personnel Standing by while someone injected themselves, ready to reverse the effects of the overdose. Do you think they thought for a minute that that activity should be criminal? Of course not.
2: To me, the easiest remedy is to either amend or repeal the Krakow statute. So that was one of my recommendations.
5: A couple more
1: of your recommendations had to do with repealing the X waiver and revising laws uh, regulating methadone treatment. And then finally, conforming with the buprenorphine laws in the UK and Canada. Can you comment on those?
2: Yeah. So, and actually, this this has real potential on the buprenorphine and the X waiver. Um, this is uh, has got by, again bipartisan support. There's actually, I, I know of two bills in uh, one in the Senate. Uh, uh, I think Lisa Murkowski of Alaska is behind that one that would repeal the X waiver. And this is relatively not controversial among addiction specialists. So basically, uh, like methadone, there's a buprenorphine, which is a, Schedule 3 opioid, it's a partial opioid agonist, it was originally developed to treat pain, but it's been found to be very useful, it's used in the same way as methadone, as an opioid replacement therapy. Get the person off of the IV drug they're using. Uh, after get, you, you're eliminating the concerns of going into withdrawal because they're getting buprenorphine, which will bind with enough receptors, they don't go into withdrawal. But they're also not getting, they're high, they're having to deal with, routines, uh, stress, stressors that tend to make drug users go back to the drug, now they have to deal with them differently. And then they become, once they, 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 their lives get stabilized, then you could work on you know, what it is that's, that, that is behind their addiction. You get them the help they need. So uh, that's been around for a number of years, but the, the DEA requires that if you want to, as a primary care doctor, prescribe buprenorphine therapy for an addict, you have to take a special course and you're subject to certain regulations and there's also limits on how many patients you can even see and in return for that you get a waiver on your DEA license number an X, it's called an X waiver that says you're permitted to do this and it's kind of ironic because you're permitted to prescribe with your DEA license you know much more powerful opioids than buprenorphine like oxycodone or hydrocodone or dilaudid or fentanyl or morphine but you got to get this X waiver and it stood in, in a way actually of, uh, of, of doctors wanting to take advantage of it. They were kind of nervous about it. They also figured if they get this X waiver, now the government's going to be watching this with other people. And they're hearing all these stories about doctors being arrested. So only a very small percentage, I think 2% of doctors who could be doing this have taken advantage of it. So many people have called for just eliminating the X waiver altogether, requirements in and, and most other countries. Doctors who are primary care doctors who are interested in prescribing buprenorphine therapy for for the treatment of addiction, just go ahead and do it. There's no special uh, uh, administrative requirement. And if our goal is to to get to the people where they are, we want to make these primary care providers who are interested in in doing that more able to do it. We want to remove the obstacles to them. Likewise with methadone. Now, methadone is the oldest form of opioid replacement therapy Uh, it's been around since the 1960s. Um, Methadone used to be regulated, methadone treatment centers used to be regulated by the FDA, but the early part of the century, it was taken over by the DEA, and they added so many restrictions that uh, initially there was a dramatic drop-off in a number of methadone clinics in the country because of that. And with methadone, uh, the law requires that uh, a person on methadone has to come to the clinic and take it in the presence of a member of the staff which if you live in a remote area or even that's even a spread out city like phoenix that could mean you having to travel 25 miles to maybe even 100 miles every day to take your methadone in the uk in canada and australia for example those countries since the 1970s they've allowed uh healthcare, primary health care practitioners again who you have to be interested in treating people with substance use disorder that's I mean, so not every practitioner is going to want to want to do that because it's there's a lot of work involved. you got to know what you're doing. So some may not want to take on that kind of case, but there are plenty who would be willing to. And they're out there in the community where the patients are, where the people are. And so as far as they're concerned in in, in those countries, for, since the 70s, a, a, a practitioner can just prescribe methadone. And, the, and a lot of times they'll have, a, you know, their medical practice could be in the neighborhood, maybe in a strip shopping center and much more uh, accessible to the people who need it. And in addition to that, um, uh, there was a study done actually by Boston University and Harvard. Uh, they published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2018, where they, they got a, a, a government approved uh, pilot pro- project to, to do that with primary care providers in Boston. And they found very positive results, no negative results, not, no diversion. Um, and uh, they use that as an argument to say, so why don't we just make this the rule in this country? So that's a, I, I, I suggested to the Department of Health and Human Services some ideas that don't even necessarily require appropriation of more money. Most of these things are are removing regulatory barriers that right now are standing in the way of doctors or groups of people who would like to help people, but are are, are blocked from doing so. And it, it, you know, those barriers include the. Uh, prescription, uh, the X waiver, the uh, crack house statute that's preventing groups, nonprofits like Safe House from setting up in Philadelphia, and uh, these archaic rules from the 1960s on methadone clinics.
1: Next spring, you're going to be in New York City at the Soho Forum to debate author Sam Canyonis on the premise of his best selling book, Dreamland. Now, Dreamland is widely considered the history of how the opioid epidemic got started and how it evolved in our country. So tell me, what premise about that book do you disagree with?
2: Well, first of all, let me say, I think it's a a wonderful book. I've read it. I think anybody who's interested in this subject needs to read it. And uh, uh, Sam Canone has done an excellent job of really getting into the details of how uh, the you know, the Mexican cartels are working to smuggle heroin into this country, um, and how there are some, there's no question there are some unscrupulous doctors who I've always maintained, uh, you know, they're basically not really doctors, they're drug dealers, and they've just been using their medical degree as a cover or as a, as a leverage in order to, to be drug dealers. So they've really been providing non medical users of uh, uh, prescription opioids. The drugs that they want, they were they were not really functioning as, as healthcare practitioners. So that was useful. I don't want to uh, uh, say anything negative about that. I, I disagree with a, a lot of his conclusions because I think he is largely believes that this opioid overdose problem that we have would not have existed were it not for doctors over prescribing opioids. And that's where it, that's where we part ways. I think that the, the evidence is clear, and I've written about this extensively. And I'm not the only one who's written about this, but the overdose crisis has actually been going on since the 70s. uh, uh, The University of Pittsburgh uh, School of Public Health published an excellent paper in science uh, almost exactly one year ago using CDC data and found that the overdose rate uh, starting as far back as the 70s, where they couldn't get any more data after that, has been on a steady exponential increase. Um, the only thing that's changed over the years is which particular drug has predominated as the, uh, the drug of choice for non-medical users. When I say non-medical users, I'm talking about people using it not obviously under medical direction, but for either recreational purposes or many may even be self-medicating. But the abundance, the increase in the number of prescription opioids pills written certainly contributed to the amount of prescription opioids that were able to be diverted into the black market for people who wanted to use them for other reasons. And um, during the early 2000s, the most popular drug that people were using non-medically was diverted prescription opioids, like oxycodone, hydrocodone, et cetera. But as the DEA and all of these prescription limits and surveillance boards and all have cracked down, as you know, prescriptions are down dramatically. It's about 60% reduction in high-dose opioid prescriptions, uh, actually overall prescriptions peaked in the year 2012. High dose prescriptions are down over 60% since then, and overall prescriptions are down about 30%. Yet the overdose rate has continued to go up, because as the source of diverted prescription pain pills disappeared, the non-medical users migrated over to the next thing, which was heroin, which is actually cheaper on the street. According to the CDC, you can get heroin for about a fifth the price of, uh, of oxycontin on the street so the people just said all right I'll just move over to oxycontin the same thing interestingly and this has been very well documented in 2010 when oxycontin was made in, re, into the abuse deterrent formulation where it couldn't be crushed for snorting or dissolved for injecting which is the way a lot of non-medical users use used oxycontin um, there was this has been demonstrated there's a one to one conversion rate of Oxycontin users to heroin users. They just switched over. Uh, and another interesting study that everybody ignores, it came out in the year 2007, it was from Carice and others, the researchers at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, they looked at uh, people admitted to rehab who were Oxycontin addicts, admitted to rehab between the years 2004 and 2008. They're 27,000 plus in, the, in their sample. Um, 78% said they never went to a doctor at all to obtain a pain prescription. 77% said they also used cocaine. And uh, also about 78 or 77%, I forget the exact number, said that they had prior treatment for substance use disorder. So, what I'm, my uh, area of contention with Mr. Canonez, and I guess this is what we're going to discuss in, at the Soho Forum, is that he's done a great job of documenting a lot of things, but um, his conclusion as to the to, to the cause of this is wrong.
1: We've been joined today by Dr. Jeffrey Singer, a nationally known harm reduction expert and senior fellow at the Cato Institute. On April 6, 2020, Dr. Springer will debate author Sam Kenyonis on the premise of his best selling book, Dreamland The True Tale of America's opioid epidemic. My name is Greg McNeil, the founder of Cover 2 Resources. For the latest on community events and our podcast series, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Cover 2 Resources. That's cover, the number two, and resources. As always, thank you for listening to this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic.
0: Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.